Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Sharon Mandur. And I'm your co-host, Emily Hutchinson. And we are here with Thomas Troyan. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Thomas, could you tell us a little bit about what you research and about yourself? Yeah, so I'm in my second year of my PhD. I just finished comps, so that's fantastic. Well Uh, done. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Um, And basically what I'm doing for my thesis project is I'm looking at Canada's relationship with uh, Argentina and Chile, um, specifically during the government of Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Uh, I'm looking at that time frame because, well, first of all, it's clean during just one government, and it's a long-reigning government, so from 1968 until 1984, Uh, but also because during that time, uh, a dictatorship uh, rose up in both Chile and Argentina uh, in the 1970s, and so I'm kind of looking at... I'm comparing and contrasting Canada's relationship with the two countries, but also using it as a way to understand Canada's historical relationship with human rights and how we interact with human rights abusing regimes. Mm. All right. That sounds really interesting. So what was going on in Chile and Argentina during that time? What what made you choose that? So yes, it was Pierre Trudeau's regime, but what was happening in those countries? So in Chile, uh, it's a very fascinating story, but essentially they had in 1970, a uh, socialist government gets elected, um, and it's the government of a man named Salvador Allende. And he's not popular um, in the United States or in what we would refer to now as uh, the Global North because um, he did uh, a lot of nationalizations. So he nationalized a lot of corporate land holdings, um, but as well as um, mining in the mining industry. Mm-hmm. He nationalized American and Canadian mines. Um, so he wasn't particularly popular in uh, the Global North. Um, and so what ends up happening is um, the CIA does a little bit of meddling, and they, they actually try to instigate a coup to overthrow Allende. It's unsuccessful, but in 1973, there is a successful coup, um, and that leads to the dictatorship of a, uh, a man named Augusto Pinochet. Um, and he reigns from 1973 until 1990. And then in Argentina, it's a slightly different story in political climate, and that's part of the focus of my uh, thesis as well. It's just that Latin America gets treated as this homogenous bloc, but each country has a very unique political and cultural history, and how we react to these countries is very different. Uh, So in Argentina, um, they actually had a bit more of a um, uh, turbulent history. Um, And so they, between 1930 and 1976, they actually had six different dictatorships rise and uh, recede. But in Argentina, they have uh, an also left-leaning government, but what we would call popular leftist rather than a socialist government. Um, that gets destabilized when the president, uh, by the name of Juan Perón, dies, and his wife, who is the vice president, uh, Isabel Perón, takes over. Um, and essentially, uh, a guerrilla insurgency begins in Argentina um, that the Perón government is unable to control um, or stop. And so a military coup takes control in 1976, um, and they get a dictatorship that essentially takes control under, the, uh, you could say, message or goal of stopping the guerrilla insurgency. Um, and so uh, the dictator that rises up in Argentina, his name is Jorge Rafael Videla. All right. So I got a question for you. If you, instead of choosing just one of the countries, you decided to choose both Chile and Argentina. Why? So why a comparative instead of just one country? So there's the, the honest answer is that when I originally pitched the project to mm. my supervisor, I wanted to just focus on Argentina because I wanted to look at just Canada's bilateral relationship with one Latin American country. Mm-hmm. Um, Because the only Latin American country that receives attention, for the most part, in the historiography is Cuba, um, or at least most of the the scholarship. 
But my supervisor is the one who told me to do Chile as well, uh, mostly because she already had some previous research that she had done that she could share with me on Chile specifically, and she wanted the comparative aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I, th- I thought to myself, double the work, why not? Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> Typical PhD. <laughs> Just pile on the work. Uh, I have a question. I, I found it really interesting I say that we view or people have viewed all of Latin America as just one big block. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that our view is just seeing them all as one where they're all clearly different countries and all different? Uh, I think it has to do, there's a myriad of answers, I suppose, but in terms of the Canadian literature, uh, it seldom looks further south than the United States, historically speaking. It, uh, it, there's not, I, I suppose, part of it is that we didn't actually have diplomatic relationships with countries in the Southern Hemisphere until during and after World War II. There was no need to have formal embassies um, down there. Um, But what ended up happening is, as the Nazi regime takes control in Europe, a lot of diplomats leave Europe and don't have a job. So uh, they ended up getting sent south. And there was more incentive to work with our Latin American partners simply because uh, Europe was falling apart at the time. And there's uh, this integration that's occurring during the Second World War. But I think the other part of it, too, is there's kind of this cultural block that Canada focuses on and is really a part of. So part of it is, um, and it's uh, a book, I can't remember the exact title uh, title or author of, but it's called the more or less the Anglosphere. So it's the idea that um, Canada, former uh, white British settler colonies and the United States are kind of in this cultural block together and they pay special attention to each other, not only culturally but also diplomatically. So part of that could also could be part of why we view Latin America as this block, because it's a different cultural sphere. We're not a part of it. It's a bit alien to us. And the other part of it also is that, um, particularly in the scholarship in Canadian history, there's a focus on Canada's North Atlantic relationships. So particularly after the Second World War, which is when these diplomatic relationships with the South would have been formed for the most part, um, there's a lot of emphasis on our NATO allies. So there's a lot of focus still on the United Kingdom, the United States, also France, but Western Europe uh, in particular. And I think part of that ties to how we view ourselves culturally, but it also uh, kind of just stems by this from this uh, emphasis on NATO and NATO allies. All right. You also brought up this idea that in Latin America, there's a focus on Cuba. Why is there such a big focus on Cuba rather than other countries? Yeah. So the focus on Cuba, there's a a few different reasons for it, but it tends to be a romanticized relationship. So it's not necessarily that Cuba's particularly important to us diplomatically and never really was. Um, But the focus on Cuba, part of it is, I suppose, the drama. So there's a lot of focus on the Cuban Missile Crisis and what Canada's diplomatic role was during the crisis. And unfortunate for a former prime minister, John Diefenbaker, he tends to be uh, disliked in the scholarship. And so there's a lot of focus on his follies and the fact that during the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, he didn't want to put Canada to its highest alert, and he wasn't cooperating particularly well with uh, the American president, John F. Kennedy. So there's this focus on that. There's also a kind of nationalist focus on Cuba because Canada did chose not to embargo Cuba when the United States did embargo them. So there's this... Sorry, could you just define what embargo is? Yeah, of course. So embargo simply means um, kind of economically isolating okay. the country. So no trade um, no and no tourism, nothing like this. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Canada chose not to embargo Cuba and instead chose to continue its economic relationship with the country. And there's this kind of nationalist focus on how that differentiates us from the United States. So a lot of Canadian nationalist scholarship is obsessed with trying to 
show how we're different and how we've behaved in a different way than the Americans did diplomatically. And often the context or the the connotation is better, how we behaved better. So we were better for not embargoing uh, Cuba. Uh, and then also there's kind of this fascination, I suppose, and the fact that uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau himself had a close personal friendship with Fidel Castro. So when you get into the 1970s, there's this emphasis because of this kind of bizarre friendship that they struck up. Um, and then it, that kind of gets carried on into the analysis. So analysis that goes into the 1990s tends to point out that John Cretchen didn't have a good relationship with Castro and uh, the, the relationship gets much more rocky. So there's this nationalistic uh, romanticism, but then also this kind of bizarre friendship that happened to occur that uh, kind of can explain a lot of this emphasis on Cuba. Huh. Okay, I want to take a step back a little bit. So this is a very basic question, but what do embassies do? What do diplomats do? Like, I know they're there. I know that if you're a citizen and you're in that country, you can go to your own embassy and they can help you with whatever you need. But what, what are they really doing there? Why are they so important? So they do a whole range of tasks. So you have your day-to-day -day stuff. So yes, if you're traveling, you can visit an embassy. Um, uh, I suppose if you misplaced your passport, you can visit an embassy and get a new one. If you happen to get arrested in a foreign country, uh, there might be an, emb uh, an embassy official that visits the prison to make sure that you're being treated properly and that your Canadian rights are being upheld. Um, but also, in a nutshell, they're emissaries for the for the country. So they'll uh, a diplomat is supposed to be a neutral public servant that will serve whatever government is elected, and they'll essentially try to serve the desires or uh, interests of the government. So usually that involves drumming up trade. Um, and then uh, apart from that, apart from the economic stuff, um, usually be about building uh, relationships and also maybe trying to fulfill some kind of foreign policy goal. So for example, for the era I'm studying, uh, the Pierre Trudeau government, he put this um, never before seen emphasis on Latin America in terms of his foreign policy um, for the reasons that he wanted to have a foreign policy that was serving Canada's national interests. And what he means by this is economic interests, but also cultural interests. So he was interested in Latin America because uh, culturally, uh, it was perceived that uh, people in Quebec had this cultural affinity with Latin America f for the reasons of uh, the predominance of the Catholic religion, mm -hmm. but also a shared spoken Latin-based language. Mm -hmm. So Pierre Trudeau, because also of uh, a lot of uh, intense um, Quebec separatist sentiment at this time, he was searching for a foreign policy that would keep Quebec in the fold and appease Quebecers. So he sees Latin America as this region that could be of interest in that it would be a foreign policy connection that would make Quebec happy. Um, but then on the economic side, he's uh, kind of uh, famously pursuing what's called the third option policy. And so essentially, they did a foreign policy review of their rela Canada's relationship with the, United, with the United States. And they determined that Canada was extremely economically reliant on the United States. And there was three options. Option one was maintain the status quo. Option two was pursue further economic integration with the United States. And option three, which was called the third option, was to try to diversify and make us less dependent on the United States. And so the Trudeau government famously pursued the third option policy, which was to diversify our economic relationships. So Latin America was kind of seen as this untapped market uh, in which he could forge all kinds of new economic bonds and create new trade relationships that would make us less dependent on the United States as our only, not our only, but our main trading partner. Uh, so I actually have a question about Pierre Trudeau's government because Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't there a government in between the two Pierre Trudeau governments? For yeah. A little while? 
Very briefly. So yeah. uh, the, that's the government of uh, Joe Clark. So mm -hmm. uh, in 1979, Pierre Trudeau lost the federal election, and there was a conservative uh, minority government that replaced him. Uh, the Joe Clark government, um, they actually, uh, it's very interesting, and I might get the opportunity to interview uh, Joe Clark himself, which I really, really? hope I do get to. Yeah, I wow. really hope I can. Um, but they kind of take a different stance towards foreign policy. So this is what I mean where governments, uh, diplomats kind of have to embody the desires of their government sometimes. Um, and so the Joe Clark government took more of a, a human rights angle towards foreign policy, specifically um, our foreign minister, whose name was Flora McDonald. Uh, she had this human rights angle, and she wanted to use our uh, economic or, or Canada's economic status to kind of further human, a human rights agenda and try to maybe pressure human rights abusing regimes to lessen their human rights abuses. Um, the government, unfortunately, was ill-fated to have a pretty short lifespan, um, seven months minus a day, I believe is how long <laughs> they served. Um, more or less, they, they lost a vote of non-confidence, which triggered another election, and then Pierre Trudeau won once again, and then he served from 1980 until 1984. Oh. Yeah. Well, here's a fun fact. When I was in grade five, I did a project on Joe Clark. No way. <laughs> and I haven't thought about it until this exact moment. <laughs> so that's crazy that you're going to get to interview him, or hopefully. But that actually brings me to a question. What are your research methods? So you're, you might interview a past prime minister, but what else are you doing to actually get into the roots of this? Yeah, so there's some other interviews I'm hoping to conduct, but largely I'm going to be taking a multi-archival uh, approach. So I'm going to go to the LAC, of course, and look at uh, our archives here in Canada, but I'm also already in contact with some archives in Chile and Argentina. Um, I want to see kind of their motivations and see things from their angle. What were their motivations for interacting with us as well? Um, how did they view the relationship? Um, Before we go a little further, could you define what the LAC is? Library Archives Canada. Okay. Apologies, right. yeah. Um, and so I'm going to, I want to uh, visit multiple archives in Chile, Argentina, Canada. Um, I might, I'm not sure if I will, but if the opportunity is there, I might visit some archives uh, in the United Kingdom as well. So they, they have a, um, they actually well documented Canada's relationship with Argentina in particular, and I can get into that in a little bit as to why. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's going to be a multi-archival approach and then also some interviews of who is still around that I can interview. Mm -hmm. What's it like in the archives? Because I'm picturing this like big cathedral-like library with like full of dusty old books. What, what's it actually like? Is it on the computer? Um, no, it's not on the computer. So I haven't visited these archives yet, but more or less, it's you, you get in touch with them, you tell them what you want to see, and you'll show up, and depending which archive you're visiting. So, I, like for example, in Chile, because uh, I'm a foreigner, I have to provide a letter from the university, um, and I have to get everything arranged well in advance. And basically, you'll fill out a request. Uh, usually, they have like online catalogs of the fonts they have. Some of them will be digitized, but not all of them. Um, quite a few will just be sitting in a box. And so you kind of you look at the the subject lines of these different fonts and sections, and then you fill out a request of what you want to see. And then when you show up, you have your prearranged appointment, and they kind of give you boxes oh. of all this material. And some of the fonts are smaller than others. Some might be a couple of documents. Some might be could be a hundred pages long, and you kind of scan through all that. Usually, it's yellowed paper and mm -hmm. stuff like this. And uh, you read all over them, and then you take a lot of pictures on your phone of what you need, as long as they allow photography, of course. Yeah. So obviously you're going to Chile and you're going to Chile and you're going to Argentina. Um, those aren't in English. So how are you going to go through them? Well, 
I actually I learned Spanish, so uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we're, we're okay on that front. So yeah. I started learning Spanish uh, in 2018. Uh, strangely enough, I started learning it as a joke. So my two <laughs> best friends uh, are originally from Colombia, and they would speak Spanish to one another, and I would joke around, and I would ask them what they're saying, and they would say, oh, something about you. And so I joked, and I said, I'm going to learn. Uh, so I started using Duolingo, and then during the pandemic, um, I had a lot more time on my hands, so I started really leaning in to lessons and I also met my current girlfriend who is uh, originally from Argentina as well so I started really learning with her and that's that so now I can read speak write in Spanish oh. hey, so just did the... a little bit of spite to... <laughs> 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 did you let your friends know right away that you could speak Spanish or were you just like jump into a conversation <laughs> uh, it was more like they strangely enough I almost never speak Spanish with them I speak English they said they feel weird speaking Spanish with me because oh. they're so used to speaking in English yeah. but their mom was very followed my lessons very closely so every time I went over she would throw in some Spanish and see if I understood yeah. mm-hmm. and then eventually uh, apparently when I left uh, their house their mom said oh he knows a lot I have to be careful what I say now when he's around <laughs> <laughs> So then, did you decide to do this project because you started, you had that background in in Spanish language, or did you like it for the topic and then it just happened to work out? How did you come to this this project? So essentially, when I was doing my undergrad, um, I originally wanted to be a teacher, and I so I just wanted to finish my undergrad and then get into teachers' college. But um, in my upper years of my undergrad, I took some Canadian foreign policy courses and. I really enjoyed them, and the professor of those classes, his name was Ryan Tui, he ended up being my supervisor for my master's. And I remembered him because it was February, snow was blowing outside, and he said, if any of you guys want to pursue a master's in Canadian foreign policy, and he looked out the window at the snow, he really sold this, and he said, wouldn't you rather be down south somewhere right now where it's nice and warm? Mm -hmm. He said, you should do a Canada, Latin America topic because no one does those topics. And he just said, just food for thought if you want to do a master's. And then he went about his lesson. I was thinking about it. I said, oh, that, that could be interesting. And I was already starting to learn Spanish a little bit at that time. And so then I approached him to do a master's. And at the time, I said, could I do Canada and Mexico? Because I just figured there would be a lot to write about as it's all in North America. There's a pretty significant trade relationship there. And he said, no, don't do Canada and Mexico. I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, do Canada and Argentina. I said, why? And he said, because we're trying, we tried to sell them a nuclear reactor when they had a human rights abusing regime. And he said, so there's something pretty uh, worthwhile to look at there. He said, do Canada, Argentina. So I did my master's. Um, I just, I didn't do the whole Pierre Trudeau government. I just focused on from 1976 to 1982. Uh, And that's because that's when the dictatorship in Argentina ended up collapsing. And so I did that and I focused on our nuclear relationship uh, with Argentina, and then uh, I found it fascinating, and then I thought it was worthwhile to turn it into this PhD project, which has now like quadrupled in size because I added the length, and then I got a whole other country tacked on top <laughs> of it. Uh, but that's how we got here. Tell us more about the nuclear yeah, stuff. What well, you just said, <laughs> you dropped that and then left it. <laughs> Tell us more. So that's the reason. That's why um, Britain has some pretty, uh, as far as I understand it, uh, has documented our relationship at this time with Argentina. So essentially, um, Argentina has and had the most advanced nuclear science program in uh, the Global South, or in in Latin America at least. Um, And so they purchased originally a nuclear reactor from Germany, um, and they had it constructed in the 1960s. And then they were looking to construct a new one. And so Canada at the time, uh, we we have a specific type of nuclear reactor called a CANDU, 
and it's uh, this heavy water reactor. Um, I don't understand all the science behind it, but that is significant. Um, and so essentially Canada's nuclear program, we'd had it since the 1950s, um, but in order for it to be, our nuclear energy to be economically viable, we depended on foreign exports. We needed to export our, our reactors to other countries. But the issue is, is that all of the developed Global North countries had their own nuclear reactor programs, the United States, France, West Germany, the United Kingdom, they all had their own. So we depended on exporting to the Global South. And so we did so, and uh, at the time, I suppose, uh, certain nuclear safeguards didn't yet exist. They hadn't been thought up by the international community, but we did so in uh, a way more or less without safeguards. So the first uh, country we exported to was India. We exported a few reactors to them. And then we set our sights on Argentina. And this is pretty crazy, but more or less, we hired a man to bribe officials in order to get the bid to sell Argentina this nuclear reactor. Um, and so we secure this bid in, um, I believe it's 1973. And then uh, three years later, this dictatorship emerges. And we sold this reactor to them without any safeguards. And we suddenly became very concerned about safeguards because India used one of our reactors. Because of the type of reactor that Canada exported, they can be re-engineered to create a bomb. Mm -hmm. And so India promised not to do that, but then they did it, and they <laughs> called it a peaceful nuclear explosion. And so there was a, suddenly a lot of concern about Argentina, especially with the type of regime that emerged, that uh, what if they try to re-engineer uh, their own bomb? And Argentina, basically, when we approached them, they said, ah, we won't do it unless it's necessary. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, we exported them this reactor, and there was a lot of concern about getting them to sign on to safeguards. And what a safeguard is is essentially it's um, agreeing to examiners to come and make sure that you haven't siphoned off any material and you're not reverse engineering this reactor to create uh, a weapon of some kind. Um, and despite all of this concern, in 1979, we pursued a second bid to sell them a second one, uh, this one for a billion dollars. Um, so, and it's very fascinating, just some of the research uh, I've already done when you look at the cabinet minutes and stuff. So the Joe Clark government, there's a lot of cabinet minutes on this particular issue simply because um, our foreign minister, Flora McDonald, was super concerned about human rights and she wanted to use this potential export as a way to leverage Argentina to clean up its human rights track record and um, if not stop its abuses, at least mitigate them. Um, but the other half of cabinet is going a billion dollars is a billion dollars, so we should sell this reactor. and. Uh, unfortunately, the, the economic side wins out, and we end up pursuing the bid. And we don't even get it, though. West Germany gets the bid. And mm. so we didn't, we didn't export a second one. Germany did. But yeah, there's this fascinating nuclear relationship that's going on with Argentina. And it's great to kind of uh, examine Argentina and Chile at the same time, because this relationship, this dynamic, doesn't exist in a relationship with Chile at all, just Argentina. So I guess I could ask you to expand on that a little. What's their relationship with Chile, like, if you know? So... From what I understand, I obviously I still have to mm. dive in a little bit more, but uh, our relationship with Chile focuses around natural resources. And uh, that's kind of uh, not unlike Canada's relationship with many other global South countries, so mm -hmm. specifically on the mining industry. So the, the, the top, uh, I suppose, product in Chile, or what Chile's economy tends to be based around, uh, around is copper. Um, and so uh, Canada's mining industry and Canada has serious interests in precious metals uh, in Chile at this time. Um, in terms of uh, other stuff, I'm not entirely sure yet. I kind of need to do a bit more digging first. Okay, that's pretty awesome still. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I have a question that's a little bit less about your research and more about your experience in grad school. Uh, did you start during the pandemic or did you start your PhD after it was kind of wrapping up? So I finished my master's during the pandemic and then I took a year off and then I started uh, the PhD. So with the master's, it was very strange because it was uh, the way the ma my master's worked is it was 12 months. And so you, your first two months you did, um, you had classes and then your final uh, term was just purely working on your master's thesis project. And so it was at the like tail end of the second term there. So all my courses finished digitally, but I had one professor that uh, he was retiring. And so he full on said, I'm retiring after this term. I have no interest in learning how to do Zoom. Uh, you guys can just send me summaries of the readings and that'll be good. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of a weird end of that semester. And then uh, the rest, the, the final term, it honestly gave me more time to work on my thesis, so they kept me on track. And then my thesis defense was done at my in my supervisor's backyard uh, <laughs> because we couldn't go indoors, so we couldn't yeah. make use of the university facilities. So it was me and my supervisor and another professor sitting in his backyard. And six I was feet apart. Six feet <laughs> apart, yeah. and I was petting his dog, and wow. we discussed my, my project, and uh, that was that. That's that is very it. unique. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And then what made you come back to do your PhD? You took a year off, and then what brought you back? Yeah, so what brought me back was just I took a year off because uh, I was feeling pretty burnt out after the master's, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to come back. Um, and so I took a year off, and I just worked as a lifeguard, to be honest, and I was kind of just took some time, reflect, figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And what brought me back was just, uh, I guess, you, I don't know a good word for this, but I guess it's like a, like an academic itch or something <laughs> like this. So when I had some space and I got some time to catch my breath, I missed doing the academic work and I was still interested in the topic and I wanted to pursue it further. So that's kind of how I made that decision. I kind of, uh, and it's kind of funny, I was with my, my coworker and uh, I was kind of, we were, we were venting and I just said, uh, you know, I, uh, I don't really know what I want to do. And she said, oh, I thought you wanted to do the PhD. And I said, yeah, but I'm too burnt out for that. I don't want to do it anymore. And I gave her a million reasons why the PhD wasn't necessarily a viable option and job market and all this stuff. And she looked at me and she just said, it sounds like you know exactly what you want to do. You're just being a bit of a coward about it. And she walked out on deck. <laughs> and I stood there. I could not believe she said that to me. No one had ever been that blunt. And I stood there, insulted for a minute. And then I walked out and I said to her, and I said, you might be right. <laughs> Uh, but that was really mean. But thank you for saying it. <laughs> and then I went over to my position and I worked my shift. Yeah. yeah. So uh, part of it was the reflection, missing it, but also a very blunt conversation with my coworker. So thanks, Sabrina, if you ever hear this. <laughs> yeah. You can send it to her. <laughs> yeah. Social media. We have social media. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, we're almost out of time, so I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you for being here, Thomas. It was a lot of fun, and I loved learning about what you research. The nuclear story was a lot of fun and really interesting. Uh, but yeah, is there anything you want to say before we wrap up? Well, thanks a lot for having me. I had a lot of fun too. I can't believe a half an hour has already passed by. So <laughs> great, time flies. Um, just thanks a lot for having me, and um, I'll I look forward to listening to the rest of you guys' uh, episodes. I haven't heard any yet, so I'm looking forward to it. We got awesome. lots. Yeah, we got like we got so lots. many, <laughs> way too many. <laughs> Over 400 now. Yeah. Uh, all right, so. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Sean Mandur, and my co-host was Emily Hutchinson. We've been speaking to with Thomas Troyan, and this episode was also produced by Emily, Amelie Hutchinson. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at, gra at GradCast Radio. 
to listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find us, find all our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.